You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You know, so for the past several weeks, we've been considering the last days and the last words of the patriarch Jacob. And so last week, we read that he finally died. Not to say that he finally died, right? Uh, but that he, what, he died and that he was <coughs> carried then home to bury, for burial. And during the entire time, he was ever trusting in the promise of God's coming kingdom, but also uh, in the promise of gathering with his people in faith, right? Knowing that God was his creator, that he was going to be with his people, and so what's next? Well, what generally happens is this. When, when the, uh, the patriarch of a family dies, you know, most of the time people grieve and they all just kind of, you know, hug each other. But you know what? Sometimes, and maybe even more often than not, um, there's tension. There's tension in the household. There's tension between siblings. It could be for just a million reasons, maybe financial things, how they're divvying up the inheritance or, or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, sometimes even old pains, right, that they've, kind of suffered from the patriarch, suffered from the family, from within each other, that begins to resurface and has to be kind of dealt with again. And so, well, we realize that Jacob's family, it's really no different. Now, what should we expect from this passage? There's really kind of two main lessons, and these lessons, I think, uh, can be learned from first, the behavior of Joseph's brothers, right? But secondly, the, the uh, behavior of Joseph. So I have a couple points. My first point is this, that when you feel guilty, the feeling of sin haunts you. When you're feeling guilty, the sin haunts you. Now, if you talk to anyone today, people have a hard time accepting sin as sin. They do. In fact, the world is so broken that they begin to kind of redefine what is bad and say that it's good. And what is good as bad. So sin is getting harder to define because for many individuals, sin is no longer something to be afraid of. Sin is no longer something that's brazenly bad or evil or wicked. And sin for them is not something to even be avoided. You know, uh, Grace and I, we watched a movie a few days ago, a few days ago called Lady Bird. It had 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, we didn't believe that rating was accurate. We thought it was 110%. I'm just kidding. It was average. Right? <clears throat> so in the movie, the daughter asked the mom, Mom, when's a good time to have sex? You know, coming from an Asian cultural upbringing, we're like, oh, my gosh. You would dare say something like that to your mother? Um, but she said, so when's a good time to have sex? And the mom said, college. Like, that was it, period. College, period. Do it in College. But I'm thinking, okay, there's no rationale behind this. And fine, why, why, don't, why don't you just do it in high school or middle school for that matter? What reason is there to say that it's in college that people can have sex? Are you more responsible? No. I, you know, as, as a pastor to a college student, some of you guys still look like my babies, right? <laughs> sex and the having of sex is no longer defined through the lens of Scripture as it should be. After all, who created sex? It was God. So maybe we should hear from him what he's got to say and how he defines it. But no, 
premarital sex or whatever sin you want to fill in the blank with is no longer obviously bad. It's no longer anything like that. Now it's sometimes just a forbidden fruit that just makes it all the more desirable. And so consequently, things that are considered sin are now casually flirted with, if not just obviously, intentionally indulged in. You know, when we stray away from regular communion with the Lord's word, hear me out, people. That when you stay away from your devotions and just plugging into the word of God and hearing him and, and just communing with him, then guess what? Our understanding of what sin is, it begins to get a bit hazy each and every day. It gets a little bit more ambiguous, a little bit more just kind of unclear, a little bit more of it's not a big deal. The consequences of sin, they no longer become scary. We no longer think about it in a relationship with us and God. As in, God hates it. As in, God finds it abominable. As in, God thinks it's unholy. Instead, we start thinking of it more like, hey, it's, it's my life. I can do whatever I want. It's not that big a deal. It only affects me. But we must never forget, sin is deadly. And it will foster bitterness in our lives. It will foster brokenness and so much more pain than you can ever imagine. Sin will haunt us. And I'm not saying you. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about all of it. It will haunt us. And that's what happened to Joseph's brothers. Okay, so I think you guys know by now their sin. The brothers of Joseph, they hated Joseph. Did you know that hate is a sin? Turn to your neighbor and say, hate is a sin. Yeah. They plotted to kill him, and so they threw him into a pit for safekeeping, get this, while they casually ate lunch. Like they threw him into a pit, and they would casually just eat their meal as they heard the cries of their little brother, saying, help me, save me, I'm scared. You know how difficult it is for me to even eat my meal with my dog whimpering next to me? And yet, they just ate their meal. And then they see an opportunity for financial gain when a caravan came along. And so, they sold him as a slave. And they watched their 17-year-old little brother carried off in chains. But it didn't end there, did it? You see, Joseph's absence, right, all of a sudden would, would, what, demand an explanation. They can't go home empty-handed. They can't just go home and live their lives. So they fabricated a lie to their father. And it was a horrible lie. It was a despicable lie, but it was complete with the, what, cloak soaked in blood. The blood of an animal. And so for the next 20 years, their brothers all stood in silence as their father grieved day in and day out. Where is my son? Oh, Lord, my son is gone. And they just kind of stood there saying, mm, yeah, Dad. But it didn't even end there. Because, because of the famine, they were forced to come out of Egypt and, looking, and to look for food. And in Egypt, unbeknown to them at first, they encountered this guy, the number two in command, the one who was in charge of the distribution of food. His name was Joseph, his brother. Now, did Joseph destroy his horrible, wicked brothers? No. Joseph had all that power. He could have done literally anything he wanted. He had all that authority. He could have done anything he wanted. And even with all that power and all that authority, we read in chapter 45 that Joseph actually forgave them. Joseph 
forgave them, and then he provided food for them, and then he gave them choice land for them in Egypt. And so for 17 years, they all, as a family, gathered and they lived in peace and harmony. And now their dad, Jacob, died. He's dead. And suddenly these brothers are filled with fear. In fact, you see that in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You see, this had been their concern all the way from the beginning. The constant fear of what Joseph would do to them had now, and here's the thing, nearly after 40 years of the crime that they committed against him, nearly after 17 years after Joseph had already forgiven them, they're still gripped with fear. Folks, don't tell me that sin doesn't haunt you. Don't tell me that sin is just, it's not a big deal. Now at first, you see the brothers, they send messengers to Joseph asking for forgiveness. And so these messengers, they bring instructions from Joseph's father, Jacob, asking for forgiveness for his sons. And then the brothers, they appear in person, and then they throw themselves at at Joseph's feet saying, We are your servants. We are your slaves. I mean, how interesting is this scene in Joseph's, this is Joseph's dreams, dream many years ago. Do you recall that the brothers were all bowing down before him? It was a dream that made the brothers hate Joseph so much. And yet the irony now is that they would so easily trade their freedom for their lives. We are your slaves. Can I say something here? What does sin do to us? Sin reduces us to slavery, doesn't it? I mean, wasn't this the experience of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable? The prodigal son, he left home. He scorned his father, right, by taking his portion, his inheritance. And he said, you know, with a pocket full of money, I'm going to go live my life and do whatever I want. So he goes and he wastes through the seasons of his life, just living wildly in complete pleasure and pursuing a hedonistic lifestyle. And all the while, he finally kind of hits rock bottom. And he's finally reduced to feeding pigs with nothing to eat himself. And then what was his response in all that when he finally hit rock bottom? He said this, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I know I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Dad, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Make me like your servant. Make me like your slave. And so he got up and he went to his father. What's my point? I think that this picture that I just shared with you all is the true picture of repentance. Because when we sin, too often have we just casually prayed and said, God, Forgive me, I messed up, I'm sorry, and I just hope I really don't do it again. That's, that's typically our prayer. It's a bit too casual, but you see it's more than that, because repentance is casting yourself on his mercy. It is the understanding that, he, and this is what's powerful, that to even be his slave would be an extension of his grace. Does that make sense? Now I want to explain. 
You see, when it comes to sin, I think we all live with the scars of sin every day. Now, maybe for some of you guys, maybe some of you younger or even right now, that sin is kind of easy to do right now. That sin in your life is kind of casual right now. It seems like there's no real big consequences. And so I want you guys to listen up. Those sins will prove to haunt you for years, whatever it is. They will prove to haunt you for years. The thrill of breaking the law, maybe. Or the passionate moment of hooking up with someone at a party. Or having sex with a Tinder date. Or sleeping around with, with multiple people. That, all that will poison the intimacy of your future marriage. The abortion that seems to be easy and convenient a solution to the massive problem of raising a child on your own or, or facing the judgmental stares and glares of your community. You see, the death of that child will never be forgotten. And 30 years from now, you're going to remember when you see someone who is the same age. Sin is no game. That's the reality. Sin is no game. Sin doesn't stop the moment after you commit that act. It doesn't say, well, I'm done now. I hope you feel bad now. No. It will haunt you. It will pursue you. It will get at you mercilessly. And that's why, made for you right now, because you're weighed down with that guilt and that shame, that it's hard for you to trust in God. That in your walk with Christ, that it's hard for you to, you know, that the way of obedience, it seems impossible. God, how can I possibly follow you? How can I possibly believe in you? Don't you see the weight of shame and guilt and sin in my life? It is so hard. There's these obstructions. There are these barriers in my life. You want to move on, but you can't. You want to improve, but you're frozen. You're petrified. Just look at Joseph's brothers trembling in fear. Their faces, after 40 years of doing what they've done, and after 17 years of Joseph saying, I forgive you, all is well. Look at them. They're prostrate before Joseph. They're faces are just completely down to the ground and they're petrified and they're trembling in fear and after 40 years after they had laughingly and heartlessly and wickedly and disgustingly sinned against their little baby brother Joseph you see that sin still began to haunt them and folks maybe that's where you're at right now in life Maybe you haven't committed like these egregious sins in our, in our book. But maybe your sin is different. Maybe your sin is one of rebelliousness. Maybe it's one of disobedience. Maybe right now, in fact, you're kind of patting yourself on the back thinking, thank God I'm glad I'm, not, I'm free from those obvious sins. Thank God I didn't have pre Thank God I saved myself from marriage. Thank God I obeyed my parents. Thank God I didn't do anything like that, folks. If that's what you're doing right now, if that's what's replaying in your mind as you're hearing what God is saying, then you know what? This is what you're struggling with. Yeah, you're not, maybe you're not struggling with drug use. Maybe you're not struggling with, you know, uh, hurting someone or doing anything like that. But you're certainly struggling with ignorance. You're struggling with pride. Because there is not a single person who is righteous. No, not one. There's not a single person who deserves less punishment. There's not a single person who deserves more grace. We all fall short, and whatever sin we're guilty of, it will haunt you, it will break you, it will impact you in such a way. And so this entire picture, I know, I get it right now. You're hearing this, and you're feeling condemned and judged, and you're, and you're maybe even angry. 
and it feels hopeless. This picture just seems bleak and hopeless. This is why, folks, that as we stand before the guilt of our sin, that God, he reminds us before us, he holds the beauty of his grace. The beauty of his grace, and that goes to my second point, God's grace is greater. Can I hear an amen to that? God's grace is greater. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? We've heard that. We've said that. And I believe it. You know, when someone tries to give me directions to their home or something like that, they say, you know, take, take Route 50 and go down this highway and all this or whatever. And I say, you know what? Just show me on the map. Right? When someone tries to explain how things fit together, I say, draw me a diagram. When someone tries to describe the person that they're looking for or that, they, that I'm looking for, I say, just show me a picture. How great would it be if the Bible had pictures to these kind of difficult, abstract theological concepts? I have to say, in a sense, we do have pictures. You see, throughout the entire gospel, or throughout the entire account of Joseph here, we have repeatedly seen how Joseph was the prefigure of Jesus Christ. And that is never more true in these verses in chapter 50. But not only that, we see how Joseph, not only does he display the Christ-likeness, but he also illustrates for us the Christian life, how we ought to live. So not just what we should do in terms of receiving Christ, but how it should be lived out. So I want to get back to the point. What does God's grace that is greater, what does that look like? And what does that mean for us? First is this. There's no retaliation. In verse 19, Joseph says this, Am I in the place of God? What does that mean? You see, all throughout the scriptures, take for instance Romans 12, it says this, Don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. The Lord says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says something similar. Don't pay wrong for wrong, but try to be kind. You see, Joseph was saying this, guys. He's saying, Look, I'm not God. It's not up to me to settle scores. That's his job. That's his business. But my job is to show you kindness for his sake. And that's not easy, is it? That's not easy. Have you been hurt? I have. And I bet I've hurt people too. We've all hurt. And showing grace in those times, it's not easy. Extending forgiveness during those times, it's not easy. Is it possible to not have grudges? Is it, is it possible to not take revenge when someone hurts you? I mean, how can you not hurt them back? Even when I was young, I heard, don't get back, get even. As a young kid, growing up, I thought, you know what? If someone hits me, I have every right now to hit back. Showing grace is not easy. Yes, It'll mean that sometimes, if not every time, you're going to have to absorb the hits. You're going to have to take the hits. It means that you'll have to take on the stings of those harsh curses and hateful things hurled at you and even return words back with kindness. When you just want to get back and say what's been on your mind and your heart for so long. But no, you see, grace says, be kind. Show patience. That means sometimes instead of not being thanked really, when you're just being used at work or at home or, or in a relationship or even here at church, rather than simply attacking back or quitting, the grace of God calls us to respond with continued service bathed in prayer. 
What does grace conquering sin look like? Maybe for us, we always thought it looked easy for God. After all, God is God. And God would just say, you know what? Look, no biggie. I'm God. I forgive you. It's done. But if it's hard for us to turn the cheek and love people who hate us, how can we assume that God's grace for us is any easier? If you think that the person who wronged you just a handful of times deserves eternal punishment, right? You messed with me. You hurt me. You screwed me over. You know what? I hope the worst thing upon you. I curse you, and I don't want to speak to you. I don't want to look at you. You are just nothing to me. If that's how we feel against people who just sin against us a couple of times, how can we say that we deserve anything less from a lifetime of sinning against God? Do you guys feel me? But not only are we called to not retaliate, we're also called to trust in God's goodness, even in the face of wickedness. That's hard. Trusting in God's goodness in the face of wickedness. Here in verse 20, I think is one of the most, the most profound verse, verses in the, in the whole Bible. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Look, Joseph, he wasn't being dense here. There was no false illusion regarding the motives of his brothers. Joseph knew they hated him. Joseph knew they wanted to harm him. Joseph knew that they were motivated by complete wickedness. He knew that these brothers did not give a, a did not care for him for even one second of their lives. Joseph by no means was minimizing or whitewashing their sins. He knew exactly what was behind them. Their sins against him were real. The pain that he experienced was real. It was hurtful. It was wicked. What they did to him was intentional. It was big. But you see, for Joseph, God's sovereign grace was bigger. What they did, the wickedness, the evil, the intentional pain they brought upon his life, it was big. It was scarring. It made an impact. But in all that, he had no choice. And he looked up and he trusted in the Father and said, but God, your goodness is bigger. Your grace is better. Your sovereignty, Lord, covers me all. Every bit of who I am, all my circumstances. You see, God's good and perfect will, it cannot be thwarted. Even when Hitler killed millions, even when Pol Pot massacred 20, tens of millions, even when Stalin killed 20 millions and Mao Zedong killed up to 60 million, whatever sinful action or individual a nation takes will only serve somehow. God's purposes. And right now, there's a lot of people here scratching their heads saying, I don't get that. I don't get it. How can tragedies, how can pain, how can suffering somehow be a part of God's good and perfect plan? But you see, many of you are experiencing that right now in your life. You're suffering. You're going through difficulty. And we know for sure that Joseph, he lived through that there. In fact, Joseph was innocent, and he sat in prison as an innocent man. 
And then he rose in power and he saw God's hand in it all. And so he came to the realization after being falsely accused of rape, being thrown into prison, being forgotten, being almost killed by his brothers and all that. And he came finally to the realization that as wicked as his brothers were and as guilty as they were and as corrupt and messed up as the people in this world were, that guess what? He realized they're not calling the shots. They're not calling shots. As guilty as they were, it was God who was calling the shots. It was God that despite how evil and wicked, that God is good. And no matter how terrible the circumstances were, that God, he is sovereign. That he is in control. That God is God who is good and he's full of grace and he's calling shots even when it seems completely in our minds unreasonable, unfathomable, illogical, and completely impossible. God, he's working. Trust that. And what's God's goal in all this? He was preserving his covenant people from starvation. Right? He was keeping his promise to them. But more than God simply being a compassionate God who wants to make sure that his people uh, don't starve to death, God was preserving the promised line of descent from where Jesus would be born so that Jesus could come and save us in this world. It was from this family, it was from the tribe of Judah that Jesus would one day be born. The brothers didn't get it. Joseph kind of got it. But God, he had a plan for grace to always triumph forever over evil. God has a plan. And it's not some generic little sentimentality type of thought I'm going to say. God has a plan in your life. The difficulty that you're facing, the trials that you are pushing through, God's got a plan. That wickedness, the, the unfaithfulness, the difficulty, the circumstances, God is trying to work out his good. Trust that. You know, Elizabeth Elliot, whose first husband was murdered by the savage people, he was trying to reach for Christ. She got married again, but her second husband died of cancer. And she said this, The experiences of my life are not such that I could infer from them that God is good, that God is gracious and merciful necessarily, to have one husband murdered and then another one disintegrate body, soul, and spirit through cancer is not what you would call the proof of God's love. In fact, there are many times when it looks just the opposite. But my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct. It is by faith. By faith. I get it. We're all human and we all struggle with this, but folks, it is possible to be led by faith. And so here's a question that you need to ask yourselves if you're following and trusting in God's sovereign grace or if you're not. And here's the question. Do you grumble? Do you complain a lot about your circumstances? Is there always something to complain about and something to grumble about in life? Maybe it's someone who mistreats you. Maybe it's an employer who doesn't respect you. Maybe it's a family member who's not there for you. Whatever the case, if those things are constantly, constantly the one thing that takes your eyes off of Christ, 
then you are not in submission to God's goodness. You are not in submission to God's grace. You are not in submission to his dominion over your life. When we say we're angry with a person who did this to us or did that to us, in reality, it's the fact that your expectation wasn't met. I expected my husband to be a better person. I expect my children to behave. I expect my friend to not betray me. And so what happens? We say, well, God, shouldn't it be this way instead? And so we get angry towards God. It's a grumbling heart against him for allowing it to happen, saying, Lord, I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I deserve better. How can you allow this to happen? Why did you drop the ball on this? Do you not know how horrible my situation is? God, you messed up. I'm angry at you. You know, as a Christian, we need to come to a point in our lives where no matter what happens to us, that we can look up to the Lord and say, Father, I'm a wreck right now. I'm so broken. And this person who hurt me, this person, they meant it for evil, but Lord, I know and I trust, Lord, that you have meant it for good. And so I have no choice but in faith to submit it all to you for the sake of your purpose, your plan, and your glory. God, lead me through this. Lead me through this valley. You know, this passage, it shows such a powerful contrast because on one hand, we, have, we see the power of sin. It enslaves us and it haunts us and it riddles us with guilt. And that's really the story of the world around us, isn't it? Everywhere around, people also live in bondage by the invisible chains of sin and guilt. And no amount of therapy or self-help books or counseling or vacations or Netflix or alcohol or anything like that could ever break those chains. And unfortunately, unrelenting guilt, it drives people to despair and it leads them into depression and it brings them into hopelessness and it gives them purposelessness and even sometimes to the point of suicide. You see, these are things the world advertises so freely to us saying, hey, this is freedom. Take this. This will help. Take this. It'll nurture you. Take this. It'll give you pleasure. But all those things have too often proven to be nothing more than death traps disasters, things that just never go away and instead just shackle us. But here's a contrast to that bitter scene because here we see God's grace and God's grace is so good and it overcomes all. It overcomes sin. It overcomes your weakness. It overcomes our weakness. It overcomes the wickedness around us. This is our hope, people. That we as gospel-led people, people who love Jesus, who follow after Christ, are led by his grace. Because the story is this, that God, he brought Jesus, the Savior, into the world to save us. And what does this triumphant grace look like? He did not retaliate, did he? No. Instead, he extended kindness for his kindness led us to repentance. And though our Savior who was overwhelmed by the weight of the sins of the world, and he asked, Father, take this cup from me in humble obedience, he trusted. What? Not in the wickedness or in the bleakness of the situation. No, he trusted in the goodness of his Father's will, even in the face of such unspeakable horror. He trusted in God, his Father. So how does Joseph finish in this passage? I love it. He tells his brothers, in the midst of all that, all the uncertainty, all that fear that they had, he says, don't fear. 
Do not be troubled. And he says, I will provide for you. Not only would he forgive them, but he would also practically love on them. He calmed their fears by treating them kindly with affection, and he repaid good for their evil. And it reminds me of Romans 8.31. It says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? And so, not only must we understand the power of sin and how it haunts us, we also have to lay hold of the amazing grace of God. Trust in the grace of God, that God's grace is greater, and how this grace is about repaying good for evil. And who does that? Who repays good for evil? Who, who repays us our good or for evil? <laughs> It blows my mind. It makes me speechless. Because even as a pastor, I sin against heaven and against the Lord and against my friends every day. And I say, Lord, I don't deserve it. And he says, that's what grace is. I give to you what you don't deserve. And Father, I deserve the consequences of my sin. The punishment, I, I deserve the guilt, I deserve the shame, I deserve condemnation. And he says, well, that's why I give you mercy. I withhold that which you do deserve. Does it make sense? So who repays us good for our evil? None other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we worship him? Can we praise him? Can we give him thanksgiving? Let's take a moment tonight, uh, today now. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Maybe for some of us right now, we're feeling guilty. A lot of it. That there's a lot of shame in your life. And that shame and guilt, it's keeping you. It's keeping you from coming to him. It's weighing so heavily upon you that the thought of even coming back to the Father, it's... it's You've already kind of condemned yourself and have said that you are unforgivable. Folks, if the brothers of Joseph who committed such atrocities could be forgiven... Who are we to say that we can't be? Almost, think of it this way, what makes your sin so special? I want to give you guys an opportunity, more than simply kind of going over the bullet points and thinking about which point, but simply let's find as we kind of prepare ourselves for communion. Let's repent. God, I am unworthy to be called your child. I'm unworthy to be called your son. I'm unworthy to receive any blessings from you. Lord, can you just take me as your slave? Can you just take me as your servant? I deserve nothing.
Confess to the Lord. Confess to him your brokenness, your shame, your rebellious heart. Let's take a moment, just think about that and pray. Okay, let's pray right now. At this time as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, this is a time to self-examine your own heart. Where do you stand before the Lord as a Christian? You know, folks, if you are a follower of Jesus, you may partake in this and you may have a relationship with him and that's amazing for you are eternally saved. But how is your fellowship with him? Is that fractured? Is that broken? Is there a sin that you've been choosing over Jesus these past days? You see, the Lord, he calls us to judge our own hearts. I can't judge you. No one else here can judge you. We don't know you, but you know yourself. You know if you're moving away from him, falling away from him, running away from him. You know the sins that you've been harboring and saying, I can't let this go. I love it too much. I treasure it too much. I want it too much. That is the sin. That is the idol that is warring for your affection. And God is saying that is not where it's supposed to be. That needs to be thrown at the bottom, at the foot of the cross. You see, Jesus needs to take rightful claim over your hearts today. Can I give you guys just a couple minutes now to pray that prayer? Think about that. If there's anything that you're harboring, pray it, confess it, repent it, repent of it and say, Lord, I am sorry. This has been my God for far too long. Father, forgive me. I've been trusting in this. Lord, save me. And when you're ready, as a believer in Christ Jesus, claiming that he is not only the Savior, but he is the Lord of your life, please come up and join us for this time of communion. Let's pray. I read from 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we remember the blood shed to forgive us of our sins. And we want to center this entire time around that memory. We thank you, Lord, for you sending your son to die on our behalf. But Lord, we also express such sorrow that it was because of our sins that led to this great sacrifice. God, we pray that today as, as fellow disciples of Christ that we can gather here in fellowship as we partake in this. And we thank you, Lord, that we can commune with the body of Christ here. And so, Father, we pray and express our desire to partake in a way 
that is worthy of your glory and worthy of this great sacrifice. I thank you, Lord, for your love and your amazing grace. And despite all the sins that we've committed and will continue to commit, Lord, we thank you that your grace is greater and that you are good and that even when it seems like wickedness prevailing in our lives, God, we know that your sovereign grace leads over all and empowers us to trust in you. And if it's difficult for us, Father, we pray that you would give us more faith. Give us more faith, Lord, to trust in you every step of the way of our lives. We thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please join me.